Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everybody. If you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. That's patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a paid subscriber of the show to keep it on the air. We are almost breaking even, almost. We need help getting there. And I truly appreciate and my team will truly appreciate any donation on a regular basis or a one-time basis. And we will be able to then keep the show going, not only for you, but for all others who are going to be listening to the show, who want to be on the show, for everyone who potentially gets something from it. So again, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. It's very, very much appreciated. And now, I am very happy to have Christopher Buckley on the show. One of the reasons that I called this podcast Indoctrination is because I wanted it to be a general message about indoctrination, not necessarily about a religious cult or about a certain kind of relationship that takes you over. We've talked about that on the show, and I will talk about those again. But it is about when people get their head played with, without their consent, without really being able to control it at some point, where they are taken over by an organization, they're taken over by an idea, they're taken over, as we will hear from Chris, by a succession of ideas that lead you in a certain direction, a certain way of thinking that you wouldn't have necessarily gone on your own. People are led all the time to think different things than is sort of within their nature. And they only realize it when they kind of come to or when someone helps get them back on track without influence, really just freeing them to see things the way they want to see them without someone guiding them. I think when you have people like Christopher Buckley, you get to see how someone can get moved so off track from kind of their true nature. And I hope that when people hear this show and others, that they get to understand that this can happen to almost everyone, given a certain set of circumstances and life experiences, and just kind of the right or the wrong kind of undue influence at the right or wrong time in your life when you're most vulnerable. Chris Buckley of Lafayette, Georgia, is an Afghanistan and Iraqi war veteran. When he returned from Iraq, he joined the Georgia White Knights as an Imperial Nighthawk because their anti-Muslim and racist values were consistent with his worldview after returning from war. He was saved by people involved in an organization called Parents for Peace, and they were able to teach Chris the error of his ways and helped bring him out of the movement. And today, 
He volunteers at a place called The Haven in Georgia, a local organization that helps homeless and drug-addicted people. And he also gives motivational speeches, trying to spread awareness and educate the public about the dangers of white supremacist extremism. Chris now works with Dr. Kelly on a program called Help Heal Love where they work to repair flawed thinking in hate groups and to spread a message of love and healing. He also created a de-radicalization program designed specifically with veterans in mind, but is geared to work with all manners of hate and extremist ideology. I am very happy that you're going to get to hear his story today. It's quite powerful and quite illuminating about human nature and about really at the end of the day, what we all need and what we all want. Here's Chris now. I am so happy to have Chris Buckley on the show today. He is someone who has a very powerful story. I'm sure that a lot of people would hear it as a brave story and I think really illuminating about how the mind can be shifted one way or another and what it takes to develop your own way of thinking about things separate from your community, separate from your family. It's not an easy thing to do. And sometimes it's a long time in coming. It sort of percolates. And I'm just really excited to hear about how that all happened for him. So Chris, can you spend a moment introducing yourself to the people listening? My name is Chris Buckley. I am uh, a combat veteran and a native of Ohio. Uh, I grew up and I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio in 1983. So it was just uh, just getting dicey over in Ohio area there. My parents were very young when they had me. Uh, my mom was 16 when she got pregnant. My dad was 18. And, you know, my dad didn't really have any bearings on how to be a dad. I don't really feel like he ever really wanted to marry my mom either. That was more of a, you're going to do this because you did this type of thing from his parents. So, you know, mom's pregnant, you're going to marry her. It's the right thing to do. Out pops me nine months later. I grew up in Cleveland, like I said, in the, in the mid eighties and nineties, it was really rough, man. There was a lot of segregation by like geographical area so i mean like you know the west side of cleveland was like predominantly white the east side of cleveland was predominantly black i still to this day i can't really tell you why it was like that it just happened you know what i mean and you know my my, my dad growing up was a very very violent and you know used a lot of drugs and alcohol stayed gone when he wasn't at work he wasn't at home either so i, I didn't get to see my dad a lot when i did it was really violent. Like I got my whippings for the stuff that he didn't catch me doing while he wasn't home for the week. And it's like, damn, man, like I didn't do anything, but just to be safe, I still got my ass beat. And uh, yeah. So as a kid, I, uh, I also dealt with a very close family member, uh, some molestation issues for like, when I say aggressive molestation, like I know people are like really fucked up to talk about that, but like, it's, it's a thing. You know, I mean, and, and it can happen to boys. I dealt with a lot of that, you know, growing up. And it was like, you just don't talk about it. And the one time I did try to talk about it, I was like in a position to where like my dad 
being the violent person that he is, was like, I'm going to go kill him and everybody in the house. And you can ride with me and watch what I do to people that hurt you. And I was like, I don't think I want to go, man. Like, I just want to sit here. I was like 10, 11. And my mom at that point made me, after my dad left, to go to the next room because he was going to get guns. He, he was he was going to take care of business. Uh, she made me go in there and tell my dad that I lied to him so that her brother didn't lose his life and he didn't end up in prison. So you can imagine the repercussions from that. So you were caught in a corner. That's a rock and a hard place moment beyond a rock and a hard place. Uh, so many, so many fears, I think, in all directions, but also having to be told that you needed to lie in order to kind of save somebody's life or to honor your mother and then get punished by your father. I'm just thinking about how head spinning. Oh, look, so I can give you a clue as to like where my 10, 11 year old brain was at. At that point, like I had already like this started when I was like five. Right. The molestation did. I'm like 11 now. At this point in my life, like I don't give a f- I don't give a shit about this guy's life. Like if I could take his life myself, I would. And I would love it. Like I would be like in peace with myself. And I know people are like, like, that's me talking now. Like, and I'm the most nonviolent person you'll ever meet. But like, if I could push the button or pull the switch, like, dude, let me do it. Because I think about all the other kids in the family. I, I couldn't have been the only one. You know what I mean? And so that was like, from like six and seven on, like I had this deep seated hatred for, for homosexuals because in my little child mind, everybody that was like him would do to me what he did. You know what I mean? So on the same token, I like, I hated my dad for being so violent to me. And I just wish that he would either like be my dad and love me or like disappear forever. And like this 10 year old mind is like, fuck it, two birds with one stone, let him go. Right. Like, I don't have to be in this situation no more. But like, that was like really the moment in my life when I realized that my mom was not a mom. Right. Like mom is there to protect you. Like my wife is super protective of my nine year old and my six year old. But like her first words out of her mouth when somebody's messing with the kids are like, you better be glad I'm here and not their fucking father. Because like that's the only reason that I will ever resort to violence is over my kids or anybody's kids for that matter. Like I can be driving down the road and see somebody backhand a kid. And I'm like, let me get out of the car real quick. You know, like, no, it's not happening. To jump in here for a sec. I mean, I think, yes, as a mom myself, the most angry I've gotten in my life has been if someone has been um, mistreating my kids, even teachers, who are just cruel, who one of my kids who had a lot of social anxiety growing up and didn't want to have to get up in front of the class to give a report because he would have rather been hiding under his desk. And, you know, she berated him, called him a baby and told him that he, you know, I mean, called him a lot of things. That would not have flied. Like I would have been in jail that day and that teacher would have been like, like on tubes. And like, we would have just called that a day. I'd have rocked that orange jumpsuit. I would have done it with pride. <laughs> I would have rocked it. I'd have been smiling in my mug shots. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> so, right. There are some people who are going to push your buttons and for reasons be- because of they're messing with your pups. Okay. But I'm hearing these themes, right. That we're going to be revisiting. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. 
having a mom who wasn't acting like a mom who didn't stand up for you, but instead put you in a situation where you were going to be. She used me to protect herself. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I was a shield. I was, I was a hostage shield. And that's really what I felt like growing up, man. I was mom's shield. It was her term, her method of self-preservation. She was a kid when she had got pregnant. I don't really feel like she ever outgrew that childlike mentality. And like, now I look back and people are like, is there a history of mental illness in your family? And I'm like, dude, my mom was so fucking developmentally challenged, bro. Like, yeah, yeah, there was. And I don't think it was ever diagnosed, but like, let's face it, like mental health, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. So much goes undiagnosed. It does. It does. And people also come into the role of parenting ill-equipped. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a handbook. No. We should do that. We should write a handbook. Let's do that. That's our next conversation. One, don't kill them. Yeah, so don't kill them. That's the first chapter. That's the whole thing. Right, but then, okay, so hatred for homosexuals because of this person who had done this to you. was male, your mom uh, using you as a shield, your dad being abusive, and probably then you wanting to look for some sort of father figure. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things I want to add, too, is, like, my parents were, like, very, like, they were what I like to call closet racist, dude. Like, in public, they were, like, super polite, like, hey, hold the door for that elderly woman, right? Whether she was black, white, Hispanic, you know, male, you know, whatever. And at home, I remember the first time I told my dad that I had a crush on a little Hispanic girl. When I say, like, I don't even feel comfortable like having the conversation, like revisiting it because I'm ashamed for him. You know what I mean? It's like, you ever have somebody say or do something around you and you instantly become embarrassed because of them? And it's like, I had nothing to do with that, but you should be so embarrassed that I'm embarrassed because you're embarrassed. Right, because it was so extreme. Yeah, Uh, like a lot of derogatory language, negative remarks, slurs. My dad blamed everything on everybody else. He couldn't get a job because the Hispanics were coming in and working cheaper. Mom couldn't get approved for welfare because the blacks were laying on the welfare system and wouldn't go to work and living in public housing, blah, 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 blah. You know, all these rhetorics, these ideologies that I like overhear my entire childhood growing up, even to this day, like when, like, we'll talk more about it in the future. But like when my dad found out I was in the Klan, he didn't give a shit. Like, he was just like, oh, cool, you know? So, like, my parents were very racist. And, like, I got what we like to call, like, indirect grooming. Like, I would hear them talking. I would hear them using these terms and acting this way. And so, like, yeah, like, growing up, it was very racist in my household. Like, I never heard anybody called by their appropriate terminology, right? It was always these slurs. So I started looking towards other people to help me figure out how to be a man. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to interrupt the flow of the story once you get into the kind of the chronology of what, what happened when you got involved in the clan. just bringing up two things that you've already brought up. One, this idea that your dad was blaming everyone else for everything. That happens so often when there is this sort of just general hatred of this idea that people are to blame for your either your failings or opportunities that you missed out on, but that as opposed to looking inward, you point your finger outward. And that's for some people, that's really automatic. 
And then you don't grow, you don't learn, you don't figure out really anything. You just add more people to hate, it seems. Exactly. And one of the things that I teach my son and daughter nowadays is like, I don't ever want to see them point their finger at somebody. Because when you point your finger, there's three more pointing right back at you. So, you know, when we talk to each other, even like my me and my son, we'll get into like these massive dad-son arguments, like heated debates, and we knife edge each other when we talk to each other. So like, like we're pointing all the fingers at each other, like even especially on the baseball field. I'll be like, how could you miss that? And he'll be like, it was way over my head. And I'll be like, no, it wasn't. It's hilarious. Like you just, but um, yeah, so you know, I start finding these inappropriate male role models. I'm trying to figure out who I am. I remember at one point it was like NWA, like the rap group from the night, like horrible fucking role models for kids. Like they were singing about like killing cops, like fuck the police. But like they, I didn't, my brain couldn't comprehend what they were going through and singing about. This is like me immersing myself in some other culture that I don't understand. I was white. I didn't grow up with police brutality. I didn't grow up with like, you know, the hardships and the struggles that like the black community did. But here I am like immersing myself in this culture, looking up to the drug dealers in the neighborhood, you know, like really bad role models. And I remember like it turned to where like I was smoking weed and I was drinking and I was in like high, like junior high. So yeah, it just progressed at that point. Yeah. And, and so also this other thing that you said about being indirectly groomed, you know, that's a fascinating thing. There are comments that people make under their breath and actions. For example, I think about this growing up and sometimes it's very subtle, but it accumulates. It forms the way you think about things. I remember driving through a certain neighborhood that I had driven through many times. It was heavily Hispanic. It's not far from where I grew up, where they did a lot of, <laughs> I remember their car racing with like cars that, that would bounce, you know? Yeah, <laughs> low riders, man. Low riders. And I love that song. It's actually one of my favorite songs, low riders. But I remember just driving through that neighborhood because whatever, it was near my house. And then driving one time with someone who, I think a grandparent who was visiting from out of state. And she said, lock your doors. And I thought, lock my door? What? Why? Why do I have to lock my door? But it was this automatic message. And she could see people who were, you know, who scared her, I guess. And suddenly there was this idea that you're unsafe. And so just, I think even in those little messages, like lock your doors, you get over and over again, right? You get the messages. But as you think back on it, how were you indirectly groomed? Of course, with you having a, a crush on this Hispanic girl. Well, I mean, like to hear my dad blame everybody else, every other race and demographic for his shortcomings and failures. Like you said, as a kid, you don't look at your parents and be like, no, it's your fault. Now, as a 38-year-old man who has lived an adult life, for quite some time now, I realized that dad couldn't hold a job down because he was a fucking drug addict. You know what I mean? Like dad couldn't pass P tests at work. Dad got let go a lot, right? Dad missed a lot of work because he was laid up drunk, hungover. So like, yeah, dad, it was hard for dad to hold a job down, but it wasn't because of anybody else. It was because of dad, right? But growing up, you get these, these confirmation biases implanted so when you see something 
like you see the the Hispanic lady in front of you when you're there to because me and my wife have had hard time and like we went to file for for assistance for like food assistance. You get there and like you see the Hispanic lady with her kids there in front of you. And it's like, ah, guess dad was right. You know what I mean? You're so blinded. And the more you do these little things, the more you become so numb to what you're actually doing. And you create what we call in the former world, uh, we call it a cognitive opening, right? It's a mental weakness or deficiency or lack of something that you would otherwise normally have that creates a space for this ideology to become embraced or at least, you know, entertained, right? So it, it's it's the same with any ideology. All ideologies are, are drugs of choice, whereas one man might prefer heroin, another man prefers cocaine, both drugs, they both do the same horrible things to your body. Most of them have the same gateways, but it's different drug. That's what extremist is. Is it? It's a drug of choice. Oh, interesting. Extremism is a drug of choice. Uh, but I love that uh, because it says so much. And you're right because it, it connects, I think, with the same parts of the brain. Really interesting. Yeah, like the fact that you brought that up, it like gives validity to everything that I'm doing in my life right now. So thank you for that. But yeah, so it does. It, it really triggers the the endorphins and the uh, the dopamines and the the adrenaline, the adrenal glands. Wow. Okay. That's so powerful. Okay. So then, then moving forward. Moving forward, my dad just shows up and he's like out of the blue. I'm in high school. I just started high school uh, in Cleveland, Ohio still. And my dad had been moving, uh, living in the Southern part of the state, working during the week, coming home on the weekends. One weekend he shows up just like any other, but he pulls in with a U-Haul and he's like, you guys got two days. I'm leaving Sunday afternoon. Get everything you're taking with you in this U-Haul. We're moving together. I'm getting him out of here. He's going to end up on drugs, dead, or in prison. Which, like, looking back on in hindsight, like, there's not a whole lot of things that I can be like, damn, dad, thanks. Like, you, 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 you got that one right. But that's one of them. Like, so we moved to Southern Ohio, and everybody else was exactly like me. White, rural country as hell. I learned how to hunt and fish in high school, and, like, I haven't looked back. But, like, high school time for me was, like, super uneventful. But, yeah, so, I mean, like, high school was cool for me, man. I played sports. I really got to give my parents back a lot of the shit that, like, I dealt with. Uh, my parents had a new baby during this time, my little sister, and that was the one that was going to save their marriage. But dad just pushed me to the side. Like, total disgusting-ass fucking human beings. I'm sorry about my language, but it just comes out. Yeah, but so here you get pushed to the side because they have a new baby. Yeah. Wow, that is... I was the oopsie baby. And like the whole time growing up, like I realize it now, like what I experienced with my dad wasn't hate. It was resentment. He was 19 years old, bro. Like he didn't want to settle down with this 16-year-old girl. And there's still, I don't know, maybe. I haven't spoke to my parents in years, like not even a phone call. But like they might be together somewhere in their misery. I'm assuming they probably still are. I'm so sorry about that, about having someone also new in your family where you feel that you're kind of the second thought or third or fourth. Yeah, you know what? It's cool because like now I know exactly how not to be a dad. So thanks again, dad. You really nailed that one. Like now I have what we talked about before. I kind of have a guidebook. It's not like a direct manual, but it's like, a, hey, if faced with this choice, don't do it. I don't know what you should do, but don't do this. 
Because this is what I did. So, I mean, I find the silver lining in things. I'm glad. And it's it's actually true because a lot of people will learn how to do things by making sure that they do it the opposite, how it was done to them or how they've seen it in other family systems where they think, God help me if I ever do that. Okay. So, all right. So here you're looking for these role models. Is that something that started in high school or was that after? I think I've really been doing that my whole life. Really, I've been looking for, because I didn't, I never got to like evolve into me. I was always either, like I always had this other agenda to my life. Like it was hide from uncle, believe his name out. It was keep out of dad's way. It was, you know, just try to exist as peacefully as possible. And I, I never really got to experience childhood, man. Like I was taking care of my dad when he's drunk, you know, and like trying to find that fine line between like getting my ass kicked because I'm trying to clean a cut on his eye up because he was out at the bar fighting and the cops brought him home or let him lay there. And then like he wake up the next morning pissed off. Whose house can I stay at tonight so that I don't have to be here when he wakes up? You know what I mean? So like, yeah, it's like, I always look for somebody that I could be like, that's who I want to be like. That guy has like a really nice car and a lot of money. Just so happened that guy's the dope guy in the neighborhood. You know, like I always found the worst role model. And I don't know if I was just thrown to them or like what kind of cognitive opening I had to be able to embrace like what I knew was wrong. You know, like I knew it the whole time, but like it was appealing for some reason, all these negative role models. I wonder if it was when I think about the the dealer who you were looking up to and wanting his life, maybe it was just because it seemed to you from the outside that his life was easier. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that was it. He had anything he wanted. He always had money, nice things. And like, I can't remember the first brand new pair of shoes I ever got. I think I bought them my damn self. Like, that's the kind, like, I lived in, like, poor, poor condition. Slumlord landlords that, like, you had a hole in the ceiling that you could literally, like, talk to the upstairs neighbor through the hole in the ceiling. It was, like, those kind of conditions, right? So, like, I always wanted more. I was always really hungry to do better. And like, I found my, my, my role model in high school and I found it in the form of a U.S. Army recruiter. It was everything that I wanted to be. He was, he was strong, muscular. I mean, the girls thought he was handsome. He had all the medals on his wrist. He had the, or on his chest, he had the bravery. Everybody looked up to him. And I was like, that's what I need to do with my life. If I could be anything, that's what I want to be. So I took the ASVAB test. I joined the army and I spent 13 years in the army. It was the most amazing thing I never want to do again in my life. Kind of like skydiving and your chute doesn't open until the last minute. And then you're like, oh, thank God I made it out. I'm okay. I'm never doing that again. But it was so fun. It's scary until it's over. And then you look back and you're like, that was fun. Like that was living, living in, in like the wilderness for two weeks, three weeks at a time. I learned a lot about who I was, what I was capable of, what I was able to achieve when I put my mind to it. And I had to learn how to be an adult really quick because I joined at 17. So I did the delayed entry program and like I got on that bus to leave and go to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri at a 17 year old kid who was like, oh, I hope there's girls, right? And then I get there and I was like, I am in the wrong place. And I grew up overnight and everybody did really. And I found this amazing camaraderie where like we were all just trying to make it out 
alive and get through it. And then I realized what the real military was like outside of the training situation. I just, I really fell into my element. Like I always wanted to help people. Like I was always somebody that would like go out of my way to help somebody because I enjoyed it. And then combat happened. That other big looming elephant that happens when you join the military, right? Before I go into that, like I met a really close friend of mine was an amazing human being. Uh, we met reception battalion when we first joined the army, went through every training station, all our duty stations. We always ended up together. Like me and Daniel were like, they called us freaking frack. I don't even know what that means because it's older than me, but it's cool because like they knew that we were really close. First two duties, like overseas deployments, gravy, dude. We never even really seen any combat. It was just escorting back and forth. We looked for IEDs. We found a bunch. So, I mean, like, and we always had a joke, like, we found them all one way or another. Either they blew up on us or we found them and got them out on the road. And where was this? Afghanistan. All three tours were in, like, Oregon-E, uh, which is, like, nine miles south of the Pakistani border. Just close enough for Pakistan to lop rockets at us every day and blame it on the Taliban. On October 31st of 2008, we were joking around in a vehicle. Commander comes over and he's like, hey, the, the vehicle behind us is... Our load vehicle, it had supplies, ammo, all kinds of stuff for the fob that we were taking it to. And we were just escorting. And I smoked cigarettes. I had been three hours without a cigarette. I can't smoke. I've got all this ammo in my truck. One spark, one, you know, boom. It, we just, everybody's messed up. He chewed tobacco. Now we both had to pee. There were plenty of empty Gatorade bottles laying around. We did it all the time. So I was like, bro, I'm going to get out and check that load. I'll ratchet them binders down and, and hit the, the link. Make sure we pull another chain link in, keep it from swaying. And uh, that way I can smoke a cigarette while I'm out there. He's like, nah, bro, I've got to stretch my legs. I'm laying here. I'm melting. I need some air. Get up in the gutters. We, we had this whole last conversation. Back door pops open. We wrestle, struggling to get to the back door. He hops out before me. And he's like, ha ha, and fall. And I was like, ah, that's what you get, motherfucker, for laughing at me. I, you know, and I look out the window, still laughing. No helmet, got my body armor on, and I'm laughing at him. And I noticed that, like, he took the first round of a bullet over his left eye, and it came out the back of his head. And this was like, like everything in me, I lost everything. I had no military bearing, left my rifle in the truck. I'm outside in an active troop in contact, bullets flying, and I'm trying to drag him up into the back of this MRAP while holding this clayy, like, mud substance with, like, bone fragment, like, trying to push it into the, the back of his head, right? The whole time I'm experiencing what post-mortem reflexes are for the first time ever, it looked like he was trying to yawn. The good eye was still kind of looking around slowly and it would roll up and I'm talking to it. Fuck, man, see what you did? See? And I'm shoving stuff and I'm holding the whole time I, I knew, but I didn't want to know. And I remember the, the first thing I remember after that, I don't remember anything until we're driving down a route, getting out of our kill zone, what which we call it, and the uh, assistant vehicle commander's like, Buckley, put your fucking headset on. You've got a full bird colonel on the, on the line, and he wants to talk to you directly. Put the headset on. He's like, you will stop that convoy. You will place that soldier on a medevac bird, and you will send him to base. And, like, I remember, like, I've always been the most respectful soldier. I did my duties. I followed my orders. I didn't like them, but I did them. And I, I just, I was so just shattered. I said, fuck you, sir. He started this mission with us. He will fucking end it with us. And I throwed the headset back. I remember we had three miles to go to base. We were three miles outside our, our, our gate. 
once the the trauma settled of what had initially happened and I had time to like think about what was happening, like I hated anything that had anything to do with Islam. That was my cognitive opening. That moment in my life was the beginning of allowing in the anti-Muslim, anti-Islamic, Islamophobic rhetoric and ideology, and it was my buy-in, right? So that was a really important time. Oh, I'm so I am so sorry to hear about that. I mean, just that moment that you portray where you're talking to him and still joking around and laughing, just thinking everything's fine. Like, and it happened so fast. Like, you don't, you don't say, like, it looked like he just lost his footing and went down. And like, you look out and the dude's got a hole in his head and everything's laying on the ground. And it's like, how the fuck do I, I fix this? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I felt like a little girl. And that's not like to be like negative towards women in any way. But I I look at my daughter when she like spills milk on the counter and she's like, you know, and it's like, I felt that in so many levels. And I always laugh when she does that because I know that panic feel. Like, And I'm just like, hey, it's cool, man. Don't cry over spilled milk. Right. So, but that's a real, that was a really interesting turning point. And again, I'm so sorry to hear about your friend, but you're right. So I mean, here you had been raised with this idea, and I don't know if you even need to be raised with it for something like that to happen in that moment, but being raised with this idea of, it's almost like generalized thinking, like all fill in the blank are like this. And now all of this group are the enemy, as opposed to just the guy who was shooting the rifle. It's the us versus them mentality that every ideology and every extremist view need. It's always us versus them. And if you're not with us, you are them. Kind of like nowadays, you're either a white supremacist now or you're Antifa. There's no middle ground. Like it's us versus them. And when you put people in a position to where they have to make a choice, you don't really get to bitch about the choice they make, right? Kind of like when somebody says, hey, that offended me and it hurt my feelings. I learned that when somebody tells you that you've hurt their feelings or somebody says that that offended them, you don't really have the right to tell them they're not. And then... You know, I come home and I'm harboring this hatred towards Islam, towards anything Muslim. I actually took part in like this stuff that you've seen over like on the news about like peeing on and burning Qurans overseas. Had every bit of, you know, involvement with stuff like that. Any chance I got. Remember, I come home and I decided I was going to transfer to guard. The National Guard doesn't get deployed. They're always home. They're always doing stuff. Two months after I transferred to a National Guard unit, I got deployed to a state active duty mission, which was a natural disaster in Jackson, Kentucky. On the way back from that accident, I was involved in a very serious Humvee accident. The back axle snapped. I flipped it once end over end and seven barrel rolls down the highway. Broke my back, suffered severe head trauma. That was my introduction to opiate painkiller. So now I've had a cognitive opening. I've started a regiment of addictive substances, opiates. I was on two Roxy Cotton 30s every day for three months. And then out of the blue, the doctor's like, yeah, we're not going to give you no more refills. These are only refills you get. And I was at the point where I was sitting in a bed for three months. I couldn't bath myself. I had to be helped to a tub. Somebody had to take care of me because like I could have severed the spinal cord. It was that bad of a break. I would literally fall asleep with a little pocket in my shirt like this. And I would pour about eight of those pills in there. And I would munch them until I would nod out. When I woke up, I would start munching again. 
And I would just nod back out. And that's how I got through that three months before I was able to walk on a walker and, and use a cane. Like it was two years of recovery. Unbelievable. But also to be taken off just cold turkey like that. I mean, it's it it is so not only irresponsible, but it is so dangerous to do to somebody. Well, that's why I started to speak and buy them on the streets. So like that point, like, so there's two main points to my story. Like there was the initial hatred that I experienced early in childhood with the homosexual molestation, right? Then there was the cognitive opening in the military to have the hate come up from the molestation and be met with the anti-Islamic hate. And then there was the impaired mental ability to use that moral cognitive approach to be able to combat that. So like I had all the ingredients and it was time to bake some cupcakes. It was time to bake some seriously disturbing cupcakes, right? So, all right. So then let's move on to uh, to you in the kitchen, so to speak. Uh, what happened next? Uh, I remember uh, the, the pain pills slowly evolved and like turned into more hardcore and elusive drugs. Uh, eventually ended up to where I was using probably three and a half to four grams of methamphetamine every two days. They called me speed flash, right? Like I was here and going, boom. I weighed 110 pounds. I was very sick, very sick. And I remember one of the guys I was buying dope off of was a black guy. And like, we were always cool, but like, we weren't that cool, right? Like I didn't have any like, like my racism stuff didn't really start until like I got into the clan. But I remember he was telling me about this white chick that he knew that would do anything in the world. Like you just name it. Like, and like she gets paid for this stuff. And he was just throwing her a sack of dope here and there. And I was like, damn, cool story, bro. Hey, where's my dope? Like, I need that. Here's money. Like, I just like, I don't want to hear about your sex campaigns. So I got home from work one night, which was something that I was vaguely able to do was hold down a job and be a junkie. And there he was at my house with my wife's sister. That was the girl. And I was like, no, I, you know, we fell out immediately. He got kicked out of the house. She got kicked out of the house. And I got right on my little computer there and I Googled, how can I protect the white race? Right. I was mad. I was hurt. I was angry. And then I got involved. I found a feller by the name of Roy Denburton on the loyal white knight of the Ku Klux Klan's webpage. And he reached out to me, invited me to a cookout. We smoked some dope, didn't eat. I don't know why we even cook food, really, because we just smoked our backs out and got high as giraffe balls and like stayed up for three days smoking meth. And he, he invited me to join the, the group. And I was like, oh, yeah, fuck, yeah, I want to do this. Most of it was like mystery. Like it's the KKK. There's as much mystery that surrounds the KKK as there are the Freemasons. Like just the the rituals that they that they perform. They're very secretive. You know, you want to know what they know and and like. The Freemasons is more of like a knowledge base. And, and like we all know are, you know, with the Freemasons, like there's the rumors that when you get up into like the 33rd and stuff like that. But, you know, with the Klan, it was more like, I just wanted to know about like the history of it. You know what I mean? It was super secretive. And it was the taboo of it being forbidden that I was like, what? hold my fucking beer. And at the same time was I, I joined like, you hear people say that Trump created the white supremacy problem. Like, no, dude, I joined under Obama, right? I voted for Obama while I was in the military. And then I joined the KKK under Obama when he got reelected. 
Like, like during that time, he got reelected while I was in the KKK. Okay. And when you voted for him initially, you know, what was that about? I, I didn't give a shit. It was better than who was in there, in my opinion. You know what I mean? I was like, hey, I get to be part of history. I get to, like, help elect the first black president in history. Like, I that's part of my history now. I did that. You know what I mean? Like, that was my vote, and it, he won by a landslide. But damn it if my vote wasn't there. Right. And that reminds me actually of a question. And um, I, I will remember where you are in the story because you, <laughs> this is where mm, this is where I really want you to be able to talk more about your experiences in the KKK. But I was also wondering just quickly when you were talking about joining the army. So here you were kind of, you know, you're sharing barracks, you're, you're in spaces with people from all over and all probably races, nationalities. What was that like for you? Didn't bother me a bit. It had zero effect on me. Those were my brothers. I loved them. Okay. Which is so interesting because that says so much about who you naturally are. Right. Okay. Like the weirdest part about it for me, like, and I'm just going to be truthfully like blunt ass obvious, was shower time. I could not stand to be around that many naked men. And like the stuff that happened while I was like a kid, like that still bothers me today. Yes. Understood. Yeah. No, that makes sense. It makes sense. It just, it was a reminder. Like I wanted to be as far away from any other naked man as I could. You know what I mean? And it was due to that. Like it, it didn't seem to bother anybody else. Like I was severely homophobic in the military, like severely, like I would shower with shorts on PT shorts. I had my shower shorts and I would wash them every time I washed laundry, but they got hung up to dry. And like, I didn't shower naked and i like implored everybody else to like put the fucking shorts on. Yeah, understood. I completely understand. Okay. All right. So now here you spend all these these three days. It seems sleepless. Oh yeah, sleepless. And like, you know, I remember he was like, I got some friends coming over. You're gonna love them. And you know, it was a dude and his wife and kids, another guy and his wife and kids, and the kids all played. The wives were like super, and I was like, damn, I miss my dudes, man. Like, I miss my army guys. Like, we used to do this shit. Like, our kids would play. Our wives would play. We would do shit. We would drink. We would play video. We would do everything together. And they were gone. And I realized just how much of an emptiness I had. So I rushed home. And I'm like, Melissa, like, you've got to come and meet these guys, man. They're so cool. They're so awesome. My wife, being of sober mind and 100% fucking against this, is like, yeah, I'm not going to a KKK rally. I'm not doing that. You do you, boo, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, and it just, like, I just got immersed in this this hate, and it was a place where I could do all the drugs I wanted. I never have to pay for shit because, hey, I'm a full-patch member now. And on top of that, like, it was a place that they grew and they nurtured and they cultivated the hate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how did they do that? They buy into everything that you're upset about, and they they confirm it for you. They they find ways to prove to you that the reason you're upset, you need to be even more upset about. Like, don't just be pissed off. Like, do something about it. Let's go burn a let's go throw a brick through somebody's fucking window. Let's go find some gay people and beat the shit out of them. Let's look burn a cross at a church, you know. And it's like that. This is the shit that like we were involved with. So I I wonder about those things. I mean, first of all, the things that you were involved in that you're thinking back on. 
you know, and, and probably having some thoughts about what you did. Uh, a lot of people have that. A lot of people think like, you know, how is it that I was able to get wound up to that point where I participated in something now that I would never do? And I think, but also something you said is so fascinating about how, you know, cultivating this hate, nurturing it, that they would take kind of examples, I guess, and have you be mad at a particular group of people based on that and then want you to be even more mad about it. But I think probably a lot of those things that were presented to you were not necessarily facts. No, it was facts as they wanted them to be interpreted. You know, so it's kind of like, so the KKK and white supremacists right now are having a fucking field day with this border crisis situation, right? What are the facts? When did the border crisis start, right? It started under Obama. It was neglected. It was like the policy to put kids in cages separated from their parents started under Obama, right? That was uh, that was an Obama policy. Trump never did anything about it. He let it go. So it's now a Trump problem, right? Biden gets in there. He doesn't really do anything positive about it. He's just throwing money at it. Now it's a Biden problem. Does it mean that it's Biden's policy? Look at what Biden did to the border. Do you see how that works? Trump got it. It was like, oh, look at what Trump's doing to kids in cages. When they literally pulled up the executive order from like 2014, it was like, this is how we will house children and, and stuff. And it was like, so it showed when that, you know, president signed shit and just sl slide it off. You know, it's lobbied bills that come in front of them. I swear if a president could read me 10 lines out of a bill that he signed, either of the last 10 presidents, I would be severely amazed and I would eat those words. They just blindly sign stuff and slide it off. And then they're like, the fuck did I sign, man? And it's like, oh, we're going to keep kids in cages. That's what we're going to do. And it's like, fuck, do you let me sign that for it? And it's like, oh, because we got a lot of money from these people to do it. You know, it's that confirmation bias. Well, it's really what we do every time we watch the news, man. Like we have to decide, okay, these this is the actual fact of the situation. What kind of news media outlet am I watching? Am I watching CNN? Am I watching Fox? Which way do they lean? What are their agendas? What's the, re like there are three sides to every story. You have this side, this side, and then the edge that's sometimes too thin to even see. That's usually where the truth is at somewhere in a very small margin. Right. So here's going back to this idea of participating in things now in retrospect that you would not participate in anymore, but getting kind of wound up to feel either justified uh, or excited about doing certain things. So I don't know how much you're comfortable sharing about the things that you did or the people around you did. Look, so we would we would drive around at night. What we did, we called them night rides. Like you hear the KKK in today's terms talk about night rides and they just say they're out dropping flyers. That's not what they're doing, man. They're out targeting, actively seeking victims. Interracial couples, you get out and beat the shit out of the dude. If you have females with you, the females will take care of the girl because men don't hit women. Like weird how they have some sort of chivalry in this chaotic lifestyle, right? But it's there. Homosexuals beat the shit out of both of them. If you if somebody you know knows somebody, like cop burn a cross right in their yard. And we got away from doing that because of the hate crime laws. But it was still nothing to throw a mask on and attack somebody. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, eventually my military training, 
led me like very high up into the ranks. I, I eventually become the second in command for the entire United States for the LWK. Right. What was your, you had a certain specific title also, right? I was an Imperial Nighthawk. And that's like the head of security for the entire, you're, you're second only to the Imperial Wizard. And then, you know, this just goes on, this crazy, exhausting, out of control, chaotic. I, I mean, there's not enough words to go in to describe like what kind of life I was living. Drug fueled would definitely remain at the top of the list somewhere. But I remember that it started getting dangerous. People started to know who I was and what I was doing. Uh, my wife and my kids were becoming targets in public. Uh, I remember that she had one black girl that um, almost attempted, like she really, she swerved up onto the sidewalk to run her over. It was it was dangerous at that point. And at this point too, I was already so exhausted. Like I was mainly like, you know, people say, hey, I'm just here for the free chips. You know, like I was just there for the free mess. Like that's all these organizations are, are like drug and alcohol fests. Wow. I think people have no idea about that part. I did. I had no idea about that part. When you're involved in these organizations, you're trading drugs from one group to the other, selling here to make there. You're involved in a lot of criminal activities. You're basically an organized crime unit. It's the same thing. Anything you can have your hands in, you're in. You know, you're working with motorcycle gangs on meth. You're selling heroin to this gang over here. You're buying ecstasy and shit from these guys over here. I'm wondering also about the people who were involved. Were there people who were high up in the community? So I know of a few guys who were elementary school teachers. They were elementary school teachers. Uh, I know of a cop that asked me if he could become a member. And I was like, we have a zero law enforcement policy. Like, I don't care if you worked for a police station, if you are a cop, like there was a zero police. Everybody's the feds. You're super like sketched out about everybody. One guy in another state was a probate judge. A judge. Okay. And I hear rumors that there was a very prominent judge in the North Georgia area, very prominent judge, who had very strong ties, not a full patch member, but what they called a supporter. Of the KKK. I'm wondering also with, you know, when you're talking, I think it's so insightful that you see these turning points, these turning points where you kept getting turned towards something like this. Was that the case also with the people you met there that they had these events happening in their lives or? We all had this experience. We will all, anybody involved in an extremist group is going to have an experience and it's going to be one of two experiences. One, you're going to end up dead or in prison. Or two, you're going to have a moment of clarity where you realize this is all bullshit. Mm -hmm. And once you have that moment, then you're ready. Mm -hmm. Then the real work can start of getting out. And I liken it to like for every one hour you spend like being involved in the group, you're going to spend 10 hours trying to get away from the group. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about you getting out. How long were you in, by the way? I got in in 2013. I stayed all the way until like... Early 2016. Okay. So, I mean, I, I also think it's important to say those years because the crimes that you're talking about, also about people just getting beaten up on the street for a variety of different reasons, that that's happening now. That this isn't from a time, you know. Yeah, they, it's always happened. It's always happened. Okay. Uh, so disturbing. The actions stay the same. The players change. Mm -hmm. Now you see this rise in Asian hate crimes. Yeah. Yeah. 
right? And it's because of these these conspiracy theories, these confirmation bias that these extremist groups are using to target hate towards the Asian community over the coronavirus. Right. Everybody's pissed off about COVID. Like, I don't know one person ever, and I would bet my entire life on this, that could be like, yay, COVID happened. I'm so happy. So let me just ask about you leaving. I mean, what was that moment like where you thought, okay, I'm out? So my wife reached out to Arna Michaelis, who is another former neo-Nazi white nationalist. She thought about reverse engineering how I got in. She was like, well, he can Google how to get to protect the white race. Maybe I can Google how to get a loved one out of a hate group. Arna Michaelis popped up. And the work that he was doing with a, a, a group called Serve Unite and Parents for Peace. So she reached out to him and she never expected to hear back. He's like this celebrity now, right? Like the next day there was an email and he was like, how bad is he? We, I, we need to get to him now. And free of charge, jumped on a plane, flew from Milwaukee all the way to Georgia and spent a week with me. And during that week, what happened? So... The first thing he said, I, I mean, I remember breaking down. It was violent at first. Like I was very hostile and aggressive because there was another person here now confronting this ideology that I had embraced. I mean, Arno's like six four, six five, like two fifty. He's a huge, massive man, and I'm five eight, one hundred and ten pounds, wet because I'm so strung out on dope. So we go back and forth. I remember Arno wasn't critical of my ideology as much as he was the first words out of his mouth was we've got to get you sober that was something i could get behind i seen what my addiction was doing to my family what it was doing to the people i love and i wanted that shred of who i used to be back we start working on sobriety and like that was a long grown out process and then the work on the ideology come in we started to confront these ideas that I had, these confirmation bias that I have in my mind. I know I say that word a lot, but that's really what ideology hinges on. So I remember one of the crazy ideas that I had was that it was only white people that were suffering in the homeless pandemic. So he puts me on a plane, we fly to LA, and we volunteer to serve food to the homeless people at the Midnight Mission. We also visited Homeboy Industries, where I got to meet Father Greg Boyle, Hector Verrugo. Hector's also a full-time character on the Mayans TV show now. Yeah, and I know that dude. Like, we're cool. We're buddies. Like, I, I have him on Facebook. Like, he's my dude. Uh, but I remember Hector pulled me to the side, and he asked Arno, he was like, hey, man, like, give me a Chris a minute in his office. And I remember looking at somebody that I claimed to hate and just like, I can close my eyes today and still see how compassionate his big brown eyes are. And he was like, what is it that you want from all of this? Like, from this journey you're on, what is it that you hope to find? And I remember I broke down in tears and I was just, I let so much tears and pain and so, like, I ruined his desk with snot and tears. And his shirt, like, I mean, like, it's snot and tears. And uh, I remember the only word I could mutter was I wanted peace. So... Onward with my journey, I continue my transition out. Me and Arno were talking one day, and uh, I was like, dude, I've got to do what you do. Like, you helped me, and I have to do this for other people. Who better than me? What better time than now? And I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how. Arno was like, you've got to find your way. You can't do it my way. You've got to do it Chris's way. 
completely stumped. Like I was just in this rut. I was empty. I had nothing. Everything that I had lived my entire life for the last three years was gone. It was a lie. I had no identity. And he introduced me to Dr. Haval Kelly out of Atlanta. At the time, Dr. Kelly was a, a fellow at Emory University. We started doing some speaking games about how two people from unlikely backgrounds could come together and have a, a genuine organic bond. So I remember we were coming back from University of North Carolina, and uh, we did a speaking engagement there on Chapel Hill. And I looked at him, and I'd had a few drinks, right? We went to dinner afterwards, a dinner party at a professor's house. And I was slightly buzzed, but like not drunk. And I was like, how do I do it? And he was like, how do you do what, man? I was like, how do I find my way? He said, that's easy. He said, take what you know and use it to change the world. I was like, all I know how to do is be a drug addict. And he was like, then use that. And I was like, but I'm, I, I mean, like, there's all these things out there for drug addicts. There's not all these things out there for people in extremist groups. And as a doctor, I asked him, I was like, you know, I wonder if it was possible for me to be addicted to the hate the euphoria, the adrenaline, the feelings that I would get that were similar to the highs of amphetamines or uh, inebriations that I would get there, the chemical releases and reactions in my brain, if it's possible. And he was like, bro, how do you not have a college degree? And I was like, because I got lost on the way to college and found meth instead. But I remember I took like a few days, man, and I sat down and I really just started to dissect what I did to get sober. And I used that idea, if I can do this to get sober from substances, and if the theory is that we can be addicted to an emotion or a feeling the same way we can be addicted to a substance, can we use the same treatment methods, like a moral cognitive type of approach to address those things. That just started a snowball. I started to research. I started to come up with common threats or red flags that, that lead people to addiction that also lead them into extremism. And the results were almost mirrored. It is astounding because you can sometimes see it. I see it also when I work with people who are involved in conspiratorial thinking. They're so wound up that I, I've told people that sometimes it's hard because they can't even sit in a chair having the conversation. They're pacing, they're in your face, they're, you know. Because they believe it. It's real to them. And one of the things that when we're working in this field, we have to keep in mind, it's like the golden rule, perception is reality. Your perception is key. And I can't remember what smart person said that a long time ago, but I want to give them the adequate credit, but like we're just in a conversation. I can't think of it, but perception is, is key. What you perceive to be is what is. So when you're talking to somebody who perceives things away, you have to respond with unconditional compassion. And one of the things that we really roped into this program is the three threat factors that I call them. There's more, but the three things, think of a tripod how sturdy a, a pyramid is, you know, like it's, it's a trough, right? A pyramid four, but you know, we'll take the, uh, the fourth wall of that pyramid can be the others, right? The X factors. But the three main sides of that are one, mental health, right? So many people that I work with are on the spectrum after the fact. And we don't realize until after they're not diagnosed. There's misdiagnosis. The second thing is trauma, 
previous traumas in life, such as the traumas that I had experienced and many others that I didn't experience that others had experienced. And the third is the substance abuse aspect of it. So you can, it's like a spider web. Like if you cut one of the limbs of a spider web, it's going to weaken. And if you cut all the, you know, anchor points, the web falls and the spider has to build a whole new web. And it usually relocates to a different place, somewhere more conducive to a rebuild. So we want to we want to drop web. I, I think I remember there was a quote, Henry David Thoreau, I think it is. It's not. What did he say? It's not what you look at that matters. It's what you see. That's been, you know, requoted in different ways by different people. But it's so true. It is so much about perception. It's about how things are defined. And again, also whose fault it is, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that takes you down that path. But I think just as we we finish up, I'm so, I'm so moved by how moved you were in that moment when you're talking about Hector and seeing that compassion in his eyes. Because it makes me think about all the years in your life early on. It doesn't sound like there was compassion, that there wasn't that kind of warmth that you saw in people's eyes directed at you. And that so many people, I think, are looking for that connection. And really what they were kind of needing was love and compassion along the way. So it wasn't so easy to become, I think, hateful and militaristic and devoid of compassion. What do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the first place I really found my passion was the military and how hard and arduous that that profession is. And then you see it with groups like Q and the three percenters and things like that, that they come out of the military and they're vulnerable and they get in, they create the fight that they have to fight so that they feel that value. They feel that purpose. Mm -hmm. Thank you. As we finish up, how can people, I mean, I don't know if you want people to be in touch with you or to even just pay you to come and speak or to whatever, you know, how can people be in touch with you about that? I mean, they could reach out to me directly. I'm no stranger to sharing my info. I'm on Facebook. Also, they could, uh, if they have a loved one, or somebody that is that they're worried about becoming involved in, in extremism, uh, they can reach directly out to Parents for Peace and their website's www.parents4peace.org. Great. I know there's so much more to the story, so many more details, but the themes are really what I think are so telling along the way and what what makes something a turning point away from really who you are and then back to who you are. I'm fascinated by that journey. The cool thing about it is like we see things from the outside and we see these people on TV and it's so easy to judge them and to form these thoughts and these realities around the, the what you're seeing that you don't get to see that person that's inside of them. And you know, a lot of scholars are saying like these people are lost causes like, you know, but like I am these people. I these people and what they have the potential to become. And that's why my work is so important to me is the, you know, I'm not just pulling people out of a movement. I'm giving people back a, a father, a son, a mother, a, a loved one. I'm giving that back. And that is the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. It's a beautiful thing. You can't put a price on that. That's an incredible gift. One more thing before you go. I'm so grateful for Chris Buckley. 
I am grateful that he shared his story with us today. I am grateful that he is doing the work to get the word out about what creates hate, what creates divisiveness, what creates this sense that a person is other and less than, and that somehow it's okay to destroy them just because you feel that way about them. What I find so fascinating about his story, too, in the way he tells it, is how much he is able to bring clarity to how it happens, to the steps, to the steps on this ladder towards hatred, towards escalation, towards this idea that it is your job to put people in their place the place you've decided they belong, and that you are superior. The idea that he went through so much as a child, so much abuse, and that he was groomed to be hateful and to group so many people together, and also through his own personal tragedy and loss of a friend, his way of thinking about generalizing how he felt about an individual to an entire group of people is something we are all too prone to do. And it is a very dangerous situation when it gets out of hand. I think what's also important is that this is how cults work. They get you kind of thinking one way, and then they increase your way of thinking in a more kind of militaristic or divisive black and white way. And then they separate you from the rest of the world. And you can very often feel that the other people in the world are just not up to par anymore. Or the other people in the world are disposable and expendable. And the world would be kind of a better place if everyone were like you. When we talk about hatred, hatred of the other, it very often is tied in with hatred of the self. So hatred, as they say, is based on the perception of the other, but also how it connects to us, with our history, with the effect it had on our personality, with how it has developed our feelings about ourselves, maybe our insecurities so that we want to feel or we need to feel superior, how it has shaped us and shaped our vision the prism through which we see everybody else. And sometimes people will say, as soon as I stopped being so hateful towards myself, I was much more accepting of other people. I was much less emotional about things. I was much less irritable about so many things. And I just let people live. And I just let things go because I was happier and more satisfied internally. But when people are dealing with hatred, often they're feeling jealous, they're feeling like failures themselves. They're having so many conflicted feelings that it just comes out in this sort of rage. And sometimes it doesn't have words to it. It's just rage. What is important, I think, to remember is how much anger is an energy. I remember first learning that line, I think it was in the 80s, in a song called Rise by Public Image Limited, PIL, 
And in that song, they sing or kind of quote the refrain, anger is an energy. And it is. It feeds off itself. And when you look at brain chemistry, it actually stimulates the part of the brain that has to do with the execution of motion, not emotion, but motion. And when you are dealing with the execution of motion, along with intense emotion, then you have aggression with abandon. All power is derived from so many different emotions. The power that we feel when we want to punch our hand through a wall, when we want to capitalize on a moment and kind of make other people feel our rage or be reminded that we are powerful. But the problem with that kind of power is that power that's derived from emotion, not achievement, not feeling proud, but just from emotion, is power that's unstable and power that's temporary. And I think people know that, that the power they feel that day when they've been able to knock somebody down, when they've been able to hurt someone, when they've been able to burn a cross on someone's lawn, is only temporary. That high will just last for that night and maybe into the next day until they feel horrible about themselves again, until the high wears off. And I think that's also why people are advised to not make important decisions in the heat of the moment, because that kind of power and those kinds of feelings are unstable. I think it's also why, and I was very surprised to find this out, that he was given meth when he was in the KKK. And so if you know that you are going to be pushed to do things that normally you wouldn't do, and you need to be able to get through that moment without thinking about it, but just being on pure adrenaline, then being on a drug is a way to make sure that nobody resists the temptation. They just have this glide path into a hateful and aggressive moment and behavior. And they're not going to think about the consequences. They're not going to stop to think before they act. It also keeps the high going. So you don't have to feel that moment of kind of an empty feeling of success. When you take away someone else's power, I see that as empty success. It's meaningless. People can do that. You can trip someone and knock them down. But how does that make you a stronger person? The thing that really shows strength in this world is not taking control over someone and terrifying them, but having self-control. And I think that's what Chris is talking about now, that he is able to control himself and control his thoughts, control his emotions. So he is able to feel on top of his game probably for the first time in his life. And it's real and it's lasting. And he doesn't need those moments to feel strong. And he doesn't need meth to feel capable. There's also something interesting that I think about a lot, which is that I think a lot of people who are scary people are scared people. They often become scary because they were scared children or because they went through a trauma that left them truly terrified. And instead of going inward, they went outward, meaning instead of kind of 
curling in on themselves and becoming depressed or despondent or in a vegetative state because of it. They turned it around and went on the offense so they would not be on the defense because their whole life up until then sometimes has been about being on the defense. And sometimes people just get sick of it. So they go on the offense and they become scary, but because they're scared. It reminds me of a quote by Robert Frost. There's nothing I'm afraid of like scared people. So now we get to have someone in our world, Chris Buckley, who had been scary. And I think because he had been made to feel so scared. And now he's proud. And now he's proud for a good reason. And it's so interesting, too, because it's another example of not judging a book by its cover. When you see someone who might look scary, when you see someone who has symbols on them that scare you visually, it's good to know, just as he described, that he wasn't always really kind of looking for a fight. He was looking for a hug. He was looking to be loved. He was looking to be seen. He was looking to be understood. He was looking to be taken seriously. And he was looking to be respected. It's what everyone needs. And unfortunately, some people don't get. So thank you again to Chris and to all the people working in the organization Parents for Peace and other organizations like it. Please check out the link in the bylines for this show and make a donation to that organization if you so desire. They do amazing work, really fundamentally making changes in people's lives, not only in the victims' lives, but in the perpetrators' lives. Now that's something. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination. Coming this summer to a screen near you. The International Cultic Studies Association is conducting its 2021 annual international conference jointly with Infosect, Infocult of Montreal and the Association Québécoise Plaidoyer Victime, July 1st through 3rd, 2021. ICSA's annual conference draws former group members, families, helping professionals, researchers, lawyers, educators, and the general public from around the world. This year's event will have four simultaneous tracks, including one in French, and workshops available. Selected sessions will also be translated in French and English. There will be over 50 presentations to choose from. Missed a session? Not a problem. 
This will be the first conference where almost all of the presentations will be available to registrants for up to 30 days after the event. This year's event includes some familiar faces and some first-time presenters at an ICSA conference. We are also excited to feature a number of French speakers. Some of the presentations include Alice's Mushrooms, A Culture and QAnon, Insights After Hundreds of Cult Member Interventions Since 1980 by Joseph Zimhart, Scientology's Legal System by Phil Lord, Lived Experiences of Lesbian, Gay, and Bisexual Former Cult Members, Counseling Implications by Cindy Matthews, and many, many more subjects. This conference will also feature the Phoenix Project, free and open to all. This program reveals the realities of an individual's cult experience through creative works of art, writing, and performance. The cost for the conference in US dollars. For regular registration, 150. For student registration, 80. And financial assistance is available. To sign up for our upcoming ICSA International Conference, The Phoenix Project, and more, visit icsahome.com slash events slash conference annual. We hope to see you at the event.